Alright everyone, hello and welcome to Burley Fisher's Isolation Station, the number one book podcast in the E8 area of East London. <laughs> Which is pretty uh, impressive considering how many people in E8 have podcasts. Yeah. People have more podcasts than they have dogs. Uh, <laughs> that is a lot, that is a lot. I'm sure you guys can tell. I am your host, Dan Fuller, and joined today by the infatigable So Mayor. Welcome back to the show, So. It's been a while. It has, yeah. I have been um, at work on a secret Burley Fisher project. Can you talk about it a little bit? Yeah, it is not secret anymore. It has recently become unsecret. Yeah. uh, Which is that we are having a birthday party. Whoop. Whoop. Um, it's only uh, six months late, and of course, <laughs> because we love throwing parties that are very hard work, it is going to be a literary festival. Hey. Um, it's called BFDA 21. Um, its logo is the Burning Fisher logo wearing a jaunty emoji party hat <laughs> on which we spared literally no expense. Yeah, was, there was a, a focus group, uh, <laughs> consultancy firm. In our dreams. And it's happening the 15th and 16th of October. We are yeah. relocating to yeah. our unbelievably gorgeous, incredibly supportive local community church, St. Peter de Beauvoir, which is like full on Victorian Gothic, like glamour upstairs and like full on accessible incredible community space downstairs with their first big live event since the pandemic started we're going to be bringing uh life harvest life back uh to this amazing building that is so important to its community and we just have the most unbelievable like lineup of writers um Mm -hmm. shall i shall i give you a taste in alphabetical order might as well all right, so this is, we haven't even announced everything yet, but we've got nine events up, uh, including our headliners, who will be in conversation, uh, mm-hmm. which will be novelist Ellie Shafak with our local MP, Diane Abbott. Viva Diane. Viva Diane. So two absolute hero geniuses who will be talking about speaking truth to power about what freedom of speech really means about what it really means to stand up um for self-expression particularly as a woman of color it's gonna be amazing so that's our headline event on the saturday night um we've got a poetry showcase we've got events about short stories we've got events about writing london including today's podcast guest tj Jin, um who you'll be hearing about and from in a moment uh an event about hybrid writing with last month's podcast guest, uh, Juliet Jakes, who will be uh, talking about using, draw, uh, you know, screenplays and non-fiction forms in, in creative writing, uh, along with Mona Arshi, who'll be talking about her, her debut novel. So we also have Anthony Anaxagaru, Alice Ash, Gary Budden, Thomas Bunstead, Will Harris, Alice Hattrick, Abba Hussein, Daisy Lafarge, Antonia Lloyd-Jones, Frankie Mirren, Vanessa Onwemezi, who we're hoping to have on the podcast next month, Holly Pester, Nisha Ramaya, Nicholas Royal, Alison Brumfit, Peter Scalpello, Gemma Seltzer, Nicholas Smalley, Stephanie Sakia, Jen Thompson, Adam Smith, and Isabel Weidner. Whoa. And we still have a Friday night 
amazing headline event to announce. We've got some free workshops coming up, including with Ruby Tande. We've got some kids events and we are going to be having an Ignota Books special uh, ambiance creation. So, And also, of course... The staff members you know and love from Burley Fisher Books itself will be in attendance. So that is right. If you, I have... will be signing. I will be signing autographs. Uh... <laughs> if you have missed Burley Fisher staff members uh, or found that when you go into the shop, you're not getting your full compliments, they will all. We will all be on hand in one place at one time. You will get to find out. Are Dan and I the same person? Because <laughs> we've never been seen in the same place at the same time. <laughs> One person doing two voices. Uh. Yeah, so passes for the whole weekend are available at 40 quid, which gets you into everything. Individual tickets for all those events are on sale. Booking for free events is coming soon. And if you fancy it, we have a very, very challenging emoji competition uh, with emoji representations of the titles of books by some of our authors. If you can guess all 13, we will give you a free pass and crown you for undying brilliance so that is on our twist threads there's a whole thread with all of the details of events and beautiful photos of all our absolutely stunning amazing super exciting um performers so join us uh it is gonna be the shit and here to prove that we're gonna give you a little taste with uh tija um whose debut novel keeping the house is out this week uh in september we have some preview copies that just gone to our subscribers it's amazing mm-hmm. and we've actually got a very special intro for uh, Tisha's interview uh, she is multi-creative she's not just a writer she also dabbles in uh, DJing and music production and she has been so kind to share with us a new track uh, which is called now is the time so we're gonna drop that and then we're gonna head into some readings before uh, so themselves uh, gets deep with TJ about everything from the wonderful area of Tottenham to what it means to be alive and yeah. why <laughs> why cabbage is so central to yeah. that question. <laughs> the totem of Tottenham, the cabbage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so let's let TJ take it away with uh, now is the time. Boom. Got to come home as far as I hid. Genies under neoprene standing in the light of a bagel shop, table heaped with all we bring. These are the days we never thought we could see. Family in the come up. That's how I look in the mirror and see me. One said I've got to be unapologetically free. So I'm in aseptic cutting greens with people who saw me from stretch. Damla, damla, girl Drop by drop makes a lake and we filled it up. I'm not lonely at the top, don't leave the ladder pulled up. Learn to love it when they underestimate. Cause they don't look at the world and see what I see. I'm looking back at the people we used to find untouchable. Now they have our shadows and they miss them too. Impossible to imitate, 
We've lived too fast and changed too quick. Single mum raised, what does that mean? House party leafleting in wood green, ready kitchen raving. Raised knowing we can't wait to live our bliss. Under the kitchen table, kids. We the kids, our brothers locked out of sight. In the bedroom, trust the door will reopen. Hear the front door shout secrets. And that's how kids get to know. Never really called a house a home. Nowhere to play out, no 40-40 home. One touch to my auntie's couch. Ice my brother's eyes, hold my sister's rings. Table heaped with all we bring. We made the legs, we're here. 13 in a Matalan's boyish shirt. On the bus a sitting duck, duck who, double waiting on his cue. We can't go back, but we can come home. We home and house, home our memory is close. We home and house. Damla, Semelina Helva and Other Funeral Treats, 2001. At the funeral, people are scattered around in small groups, their heads following the loudest streams of conversation or the loudest cries. They're either guided by grief or their grief's follows. The winds blew the pollen from some orchids into my mother's face, and I wiped the okra stain away with my thumb. Men shovel soil onto the coffin until they tire and the machine takes over. Here comes the well digger. As if that's all that's missing. The coffin is lowered in. We watch as the backhoe dumps the soil and by hand we throw some lumps of mud in ourselves for good measure. My siblings are in a car nearby. They're too young to see this kind of thing. A hoja is here to pray for my nino's soul, but mostly it feels like it's for our benefit. When not praying in Arabic, he speaks Turkish. He tells us to stop crying. He said this when we were at the mosque earlier too. God's will, God's decision, this is the way God granted it. The flowers were wasted under the soil, I think, along with the cheaper carnations. I saw a wreath of white roses cast on top of the coffin, then covered with mud. The ones still left on top are zambak, white lilies. They smell strongly. I overhear a couple of old women discussing how you can get rid of the smell of Easter lilies in about five minutes with a pair of tweezers. If you tweeze the polleni out of the flower after it's opened, you have to be careful. Make sure you've got the newspaper underneath. It doesn't matter if the pollen gets everywhere, I can just tape it off. There is a man here who my mother has nicknamed Topuz Pasha, or Prince of the Shepherd Staff. He got the nickname because he was always threatening to hit someone with a stick. He's in his 40s. And even though I'm about 10, he comments on the way I look a little too much. She's a pretty one, you know. 
I do know Annie, thank you. These kinds of men turn up out of the blue, making my mother run to the bathroom before she opens the door. She looks in the mirror, frowns, and then gets to the front door. When she invites them in, they usually go into the garden, shut the door behind them, and chatter while they smoke. She goes through cigarette after cigarette. When we leave the cemetery, the smell of incense follows us to the car. Once we get in, I pull my headscarf back down to itch at its neck. We're heading home and all the cars are following us back. My mum hasn't taught me how to pray before my first medlet. The prayer session has made my house busier than I've ever seen it. Mostly we're people who haven't been over since I was born. They bring Semelina Helva and other funeral treats. Someone has thrown one tray of helva into the dustbin. It's too soggy. The husbands have been in the kitchen. The door has been left ajar, and they can hear the Hoja's meblit prayer from there. Sounds like he's singing. My headscarf keeps falling off. It smells of mothballs from being stuffed in a drawer too long. I carry a polished train around the room to women sat crying on rugs and splash lemon colonia on their hands. They rub it on their faces, sighing with relief. A lady from the local calf jumps up as soon as the prayers are over to prepare food for the hoja. I join her in the kitchen. Topples Pasha is standing apart from the other men, frowning at his phone. From the trays, I take one of each pastry to a plate and start serving. The hoja leaves early, taking food with him. I hear Pani talking to someone I don't recognise. I'm an old friend of this family, back to Cyprus days. Makbule's husband was a lovely man, died too young. At least they're together now. Poor Isla. Alone with the kids. I resent my dada in moments like this. He doesn't seem a good enough reason for my nene to be dead. I wonder about some of the last things I heard my nene say about him. I don't know if I heard her right, because all I can really think of when I try to picture him is Fasulia head. People start to leave. Zaidi's offered to take Erhan and Ipek to hers for the night, but I'm to look after my mother. She's already begun cleaning, and I can hear some women saying, How rude to have gone to the sink while they're still walking out. Her hands are foamed up from washing when she comes back to the front door to see people off. Ring us any time you need, Isla. That was amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, it's so nice to be here with you. Tija and thank you for that first reading from Keeping the House. Uh, I think thank we're going to hear more about Damla and Isla at the end of the podcast but it seems like a good place to begin is um, asking you about how you put this book together because as people heard when you when you started reading that chapter you gave it not just the title but the date and then we were with Damla but 
she's not the only voice we hear in the book. There are intertwined stories and it's non-linear. And so how did you how did you piece it together? Did you know that that was how it was going to be? Or did you write the individual stories and find that you wanted to put them together? Um, I, I wrote them in sequence and I knew that it would be that way. Um, when I first started writing Keep in the House, I was, I wanted to write a book essentially that picked up on the way that PTSD affects my thought patterns and, and that of the various communities that I'm from. And a lot of that is you, that you can't go from A to B to C or, you know, through to Z in an easy way. Um, when you're, when you're recounting what happened to you, sometimes you'll pivot and flash to like a weird memory and um, sometimes you need other people to take over and tell the story for you as well. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of have that feeling with the way that the book was written and and also like look at the way that different recollections impart the same story and see what it might look like from different doorways. I love that um, phrase, sometimes you need other people to take over and tell the story for you. Um, it's such a, such a moving reflection on Thank particularly you. like community and familial intergenerational PSD and the way that sometimes those stories don't necessarily fit together 100%, but the importance is of, of telling them together to get that kind of like triangulation and that happens throughout the book. Like there's not um, an investment in that, like what the, the single story, the authentic truth, but the fact that it arises and particularly arises through the voices of multiple generations um, of women. And in that extract, we meet two of them in a way. We meet Dumla, who is the main voice, our first person narrator, and then part of her biological family, we hear about her mother, Ayla. And also mm. this is the Mevlit and the funeral for her grandmother, Makbule. So those three mm. generations are really important. And then her siblings as well. And there's someone we don't hear about in this section who's incredibly important to the book, which is like Damla's horizontal relationship with Jamila, her, her best friend. Frenemy, friend, it's such a rich relationship. And all of the then relations that are linked to Jamila's family and her dad's business partners, um, business partners, co-hustlers, um, you know, open phrasing there. So these two, these two axes of like Dumla as like the daughter of the mother and granddaughter and what all of that means. And then as a friend and those connections outwards as well, like... I'm really interested in the way that those connections work together um, and those complex relations like between family and family, which are such a big thing of like thrillers. Like I'm thinking about The Sopranos, for example, there's family and there's family. <laughs> yeah, Every, everything we talked to Rachel again this year, like The Sopranos is the heart of everything. It's the secret. Like, so yes. let, let's start there, like family and family and like why the drama happens there mm. between, between and among those. If this question makes no sense, we can just like cut it and start again. <laughs> no, it does. I am... Um... 
family and family, for me, that was one of the most exciting bits about writing this book because um, there's your family um, where it's like, be careful when you're going to the shop because like, we've got family there. And then there's, oh, you're going to that friend's house. Well, that's so-and-so's daughter. And that this element of like risk in the way that we are all very connected to each other, but there's a level of anonymity to it as well where the kids, they don't necessarily know. So they're, they're just liking each other because of like, you know, childhoods because of energies that are reciprocated but they don't fully get the fact that there's there are politics involved in their relationship with one another yeah and I was very I was very fascinated by the politics of what happens if Damla and Gemma have a unique relationship with each other and it's against the backdrop of this like very tight-knit but also turbulent could fall out any minute backlog of family. Something that also struck me, which may uh, it may not tie in directly to your question, but it, it definitely, you know, when I hear the word family, I think about it a lot, is the way that um, in Keeping the House, I wanted to write about characters who are excluded from their culture, well, one of their cultures. So like Damla's Turkish Cypriot culture, She's chucked out from that. Likewise, Isla is chucked out from that. And a lot of that happens because of the personal choices that they make. Mm. And through that, there's the surrogate family that comes in. Um, and then there is a type of cultural sharing and um, space given that softens the fact that Damla is very much in a position of isolation within Tottenham. When I think about Tottenham, that's a lot of what you'll find when you're talking to people that we've all just kind of like, and I think this happens with a lot of um, rough places, like a lot of places where there's um, a, a bit less opportunity from the government as per se, is that um, we end up banding together, very grassrootsy, and we're like, we want you know, if you think about food, for example, um, and you go to like a block party, we'll all bring a dish each from our various cultures and that will fill the plate up. And so, yeah, for me, um, that was a lot of the family that I was trying to explore in the book as well, like us banding together to fill up one plate. This is, um, Keeping the House is a book that fills the plate up, that's so in there like I think one of the first mm. conversations we had about this book was I was like I want to eat the food together so much like it, <laughs> it, 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 it braves it together um and it's used so much to tell us about the characters like there's so many scenes of like the care in making food it's like one of the things Dumbler really observes about people when she meets them when she gets to know them like that point you get in someone's kitchen and it's so much how like people care for each other's kids and then they like exchange dishes across culture as well and uh you know you know what's coming up next so there is a food item in the book 
that is is completely central <laughs> to it and I think like partially like one of the things that it it narrates like more than symbolizes is that thing of like this is a culture that I'm connected to I have a history with and I want to have state my claim in it and I know that I've been rejected from it because I stepped outside its rules and that is the cabbage um the mm. beautiful multi-layered multi-leafed cabbage like in fact it's the first line of the book even before the list of characters which is absolutely brilliant like sometimes it's done in such a standard way but like I would go back and just read it like a poem sometimes the list of characters so there's a poem oh, before that, that that begins a cabbage next to a cabbage next to a cabbage um and I think I also remember you saying that you made the book like a cabbage in some sense um with this this heart that is wrapped in really tightly in these leaves that layer over each other. So cabbages, talk to us about cabbages. Mm. Well, a lot of the books that I was reading during my masters, they all had these like very ambitious um, structure points that where they would be studied for it and <laughs> that was like a yeah. bit of my brain when I first started I was like oh, I want to have something <laughs> I want to give something <laughs> so that like, how about a cabbage <laughs> um I um there's a story in the book that I don't want to spoiler um that you may or may not catch when you first start reading it um it may or may not get picked up in the reviews and be massively spoiled but I saw it as the real Trojan horse of the book. So I imagine the book like a heroine-centred cabbage. So there is this massive heroine subplot throughout the book. But even within that is another story that I'm hoping that people come for the heroine and then find something more and uh, engage more deeply with um, some of Damla's thoughts and feelings mm. by way of like using this as a prop of machismo um, to get through it. And um, that, for me, that's almost what I felt like while I was writing. I was like, okay, well, I have to earn this storyline by giving it this storyline. Um, which is an, a strange feeling because obviously I, I'm wedded to all of the storylines in the book but definitely um, yeah, there was one that kind of struck my heart the most um, which uh, is, is how the book ends as well mm. um, and then yeah with the light so I wanted the centre to uh, the book is in three parts the middle part I imagined as the heroine in the middle and yeah and the, the first part echoes the third um, like a little little cabbage curling over um, I really love cabbage I the more I started writing the book the more I was like oh my god everything is cabbage everything is cabbage <laughs> we've got <laughs> we've got Sid the snail in Tottenham this mural and yeah. and like Sid the snail I, you know, I grew up near near him is just just right next to the hostel that my mum stayed in with us and um my original book cover was actually going to be said um when richard dixon the, the photographer that took the took the cover shot 
came, me and him, we went on a walk around like all the key locations in the book, including going to see Sid the Snail, going to see like the laundrettes that you'd need to go to from the hostel, and um, it very much felt like this thing of um, there are so many iconic locations wedded to the story that just keep coming back to cabbage. There's, there's, there's cabbage plants everywhere in Tottenham. <laughs> it's like, um, it's so easy to grow. And yeah. and I just, I loved that potential of it. I loved the way that it has so many different faces. Um, I love the way that it helped me map back to Cyprus. And one of the parts of my research that I really enjoyed was just talking to family members about the way that they personally would want to plant cabbage and mm. how you get the best leaf, how you get the leaf that has the, that, the sweetest taste. Um, then some people saying that they prefer it bitter and if you want it bitter you've got to have it facing this direction. And Yeah, it's just good fun doing that research. Um, I do feel like, yeah, you got me started on cabbage. Um, I need to have like a follow-up essay to Jennifer's a little cabbage series, um, Jennifer yeah. Lee. <laughs> um, it's a great it essay. Just, Thank you for sharing it, it with me. It just felt really fated that Jessica Lee yesterday published this essay called What Cabbage Teaches Us About Care and Culture, which is also amazing alliteration, um, in her column on Catapult. Um, and she writes, I cannot think of any vegetable more joyous, more versatile, more rich with memory than a cabbage. And I always, when I look at cabbages, I always think they look a bit like brains or a bit like how brains work with mm. all that like layering and close wrapping. Um, I'm also like making a note that like now Haringey Council have sorted out their sort of bullshit attack on, on Latin village. The next thing they need to do is make cabbage the official plant of Tottenham. Yeah. yeah like, <laughs> have, like a national flower. Like I think <laughs> Haringey, Haringey's official vegetable should definitely be a cabbage because it is like a very close wrapped um like place, isn't it, Tottenham? Like there's so much at the heart of it um that is misrepresented and deliberately misunderstood. Mm. And um do you feel like you're sort of in conversation with or part of a network of people across like different arts and not just arts but also like campaigning practices that are like telling the story of this you know cabbage like tender joyous place um that has been so maligned and like deliberately attacked like literally attacked do you feel like you're doing this as part of like a community connections um, all together not necessarily like one unified voice but like there is there like new conversation that is sort of happening shaping up that that you're excited to be part of yeah I definitely feel like North London um there have been so many times in our history like with the riots twice where people have kind of like been seen as one um and, and you know the communities really come together to um, make a stand and also just like recover from um, trauma. Recently I feel you know with Latin, uh, Latin Village for example and the amazing campaign there that there's been a lot of conversations about how different diasporas can connect to. Um, mm -hmm. So with Latin Village 
something that was interesting with that was like at the beginning of the campaign a lot of other people like um, my mates are in Tottenham I would say like like the British Ghanaian community and the Turkish community are probably along with the Jamaican people in in town probably like the third the three like biggest demographics in the area um, with like, I think like 200,000 of us being Turkish Cypriot um, as well so more more Cypriots than mainlanders um, and the reason why I bring this up is because like even though Latin Village was such a big part of the area we didn't really know about it still like we didn't necessarily walk in mm. whereas now we're like we're mixing in a way that's more apparent and I think about that a lot in terms of art as well like there's a lot of art forms that are starting to cross over rappers are starting to work with poets in a bigger way and um, I'm currently doing like a series of interviews with rappers and producers from North London to kind of see what their thoughts on practice and process in the area are and it is nice seeing like the little echoes between one another. I think with keeping the house I wanted to as well as celebrate the community also show the way that you know like you can write a London book and it's not just a London book like mm. a lot of events promoters I've been speaking to have been like oh not a love and not another London book for God's sake and it's like well it's like yeah it's set in North London but I think you know it's at, at the heart of it it's a story about like people and the way that we connect with each other and the way that we find ways into one another's homes and I could have been from another place. I could have been, you know, from Northampton, for example, and written a very similar story. And in fact, one of uh, my initial thoughts when I was going to start this book was maybe it needs to be in one of the other drug locations that I've um, put in the book. So, like a lot of the books set in Jersey, um, and a lot of like when I write the adaptation. It, I'm thinking about Jersey a little bit more than Tottenham at the moment in terms of particular episodes and yeah it can, while it's not the same story told from those different places, it can have a lot of the same effects and yeah, the reason why I bring that up is because I'm, I'm trying to be mindful of like speaking for Tottenham, you know, mm. and um, what I definitely can speak on are the feelings that are within the book and the way that I saw some of these places um, but I definitely, I write, I always try to write from the position of being an outsider um, and I never try to like claim a level of um, insider like expertise because I think that immediately puts you on like awry footing mm. and the book I mean, I have so many questions about the adaptation, <laughs> but uh, I'm just going to have to wait to see it, aren't I? I'm just going to have to wait to be there with my popcorn, like, screaming at the TV for that one. <laughs> Yay! Um, and Nothing's been signed yet. <laughs> it'll get there. It it'll happen. This, po this podcast More is, podcasts. Like, super powerful, obviously. <laughs> um, so if anyone out there is listening... Um, get in touch. I've written a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
yeah this book is is everything like it yeah it definitely needs to be in like every medium the soundtrack is just going to be absolutely banging which you can produce as well right i'm right yeah Uh, um, i've got this album coming soon (laughs) drop it all in there where can where where can we hear this interview series is that is that just for you or is that going to be like podcast or so um I've been putting them out with different magazines recently. Oh, okay. Um, and it's interesting because like when when I've pitched the interview series to a lot of magazines, they're all like, "Yeah, this is amazing. Like, we'd love to have you writing this." Like, because obviously, like, you're a music journalist and and you're from the area, so like, yeah, cool. But could you pick people that are a bit more famous? Ugh. And <laughs> I said no. <laughs> How um, do people get more famous? <laughs> yeah. <guys>. yeah. <laughs> And I was like, can you not just trust me? Um, I know that these are like the real, like the real, like the, like the people that I'm approaching have a way that they're connected to each part. Like the way that I'm asking them questions, that it all very much is something that I wouldn't necessarily be able to access if they were super, super famous. Um, yeah. And so it's been this uh, thing of like, at the moment it's with separate magazines, but I'm, um, building it together to be like a large text project and then I'm hoping to have like some type of um college style picture where everyone's rounded up and uh we're all with each other and it kind of hopefully will tell like a nice little story so yeah that's a small project that I'm doing at the moment um that I'm really enjoying and then with the the thought of the soundtrack for the project for the for the book um yeah, we've got the EP coming out at the end of September, fingers crossed. It, and uh, I'm really enjoying putting it together. It's I'm producing a couple tracks on there where I've used the interviews that I that formed certain sections of the book, and I've like EQ'd them and everything to anonymise people's voices, and they're forming the backdrop to these like bangers. And um, yeah, then I've got other producers from the area who are also like entering the story in a way that strikes them I just just sent them all the book and like sat on the phone with them and um, some of them who were like oh I can't bother to read it like can you just tell me the story so I was just like on the phone like storytelling <laughs> and uh, they all just like leaned into these different bits um, so it would be a nice project it's um, it was supposed to actually come out next week but then I thought to myself I'd rather give it a little bit more time just so that yeah. people feel that they can really like emotionally connect to the way that they put the projects together. Because um, I think, yeah, lockdown really did affect the ability to go studio and we want to be in a room with each other when we're recording, I think, because it it does um it does give a certain vibe to the sound. You can hear it when yeah. when people have been in the room together um, or even like a digital room but where their headspace has been in that room if that makes sense so I didn't feel like I think throughout lockdown I haven't wanted to push any art making onto people um, just so that they they feel present whether we're doing something like you know across that because cause we've got like some digital studios per se like where we've been on a Zoom recording together, um, but we have felt still like we had our attention and mind on it because um, obviously while the pandemic is is still 
it's still ongoing but the, the specific people that I'm working with are definitely in a healthier headspace now to work and so yeah um, end of September fingers crossed <laughs> so just check out uh, Tija's Twitter Instagram more news on that and um, the adaptation as well um, I was just thinking about what you're saying about being in the room together because keeping the house is a book about being in rooms together that's sometimes that is a more ambivalent experience or even can be quite a scary experience but it is like each chapter is built as like these rooms where people are together in different ways and the book is obviously called keeping the house um and being very literal minded reader i was like oh well there you know there's houses in it aren't i clever um yay wow so i like that absolutely um locking on to that theme there um the it's it just reminded me of like something one of our uh, like one of the first people we podcasted with and a big Bernie Fisher favorite um like PT Teenager has said that that the expectations for like diaspora writing are really fixed um in like dominant Anglo-British culture which is it's going to be like this super tragic story of like being a divided person and like it's irreconcilable and it has to be presented as a tragedy or it has to be presented as this story of assimilation which is then you know unsuccessful and she said like that's that's just not the case like whether it's a generational shift or that story was always an imposition like it's it's a hybrid living being and the book your book um shows that it's um takes place in partially in London, partially in North Cyprus, partially, as you said, in Jersey. And it narrates stories that travel, that travel the routes between those places and travel other routes. And I'm just really like, I love that um, sense of there being multiple places, multiple houses that are being remembered, looked after, maintained, held onto, even if sometimes they're thought about with ambivalence or sadness, they're all part of the life and of the book. And I just... I just wondered if you could talk a bit about that, about like, we talked a bit about Tottenham and, and North London and places going out of that, but this this sense of the book as a kind of bridge or series of bridges or relationships, and then they all come together in like these, these little rooms and conversations. Mm. I, I, I did, I think some some PTSD as well um, for me was um, so one of the questions that your like a therapist um, a specific uh, like the CPTSD therapist will say would be like can you like picture the room first and mm. so it's like and so for me a lot of those sequences was like. Creating a fantasy of that room, like those rooms. Um, so they're they're like these rooms that I rebuilt and then changed, which made me feel nice to be able to do that, to be able to flesh memories out and then deconstruct them again. Um, there was some sense of agency that I felt, and then, and when the fiction property property took over, it. 
it wasn't like I was wiping my memory, but it definitely felt like I was um, putting like a balm around certain things and and reaccessing the things that I wanted to reaccess as well. So writing about farm is is a big one for me because it's a place that holds so much glory in. I was speaking to Caleb Femi recently and he was talking to me about how North Peckham Estate, when he writes about it, it very much feels like he is writing a community um, mysticism into place when mm. he, because these places they do, they're like, um, you know, you have your stories about like, random stuff taking place. Like, so one of the um, first things that I wrote when I was writing Keeping the House was the scene where Dumla was talking about boarded up houses around the mm -hmm. area and um, yeah, I, I always thought there were witches and stuff in them and uh, so I wanted to, uh, I gave that to Dumla to really take on and um, I think that's something of this like entering these fantasy realms and then being able to cast a version of reality onto them and uh, with these with these men's cuffs I think you know writing from a position of queerness it felt really good fun to poke fun at them and being sympathetic to certain things but yeah I think something that um, like you were saying with Preeti is that we we do also want to like have fun and be cheeky and write the absurd and yeah. I wanted to turn this uh, a lot of this into a comedy I think that yeah I think humour has often be, been a, a key way to be able to access memories and stories and and uh, even things that aren't from lived experience just even the act of writing about them like, it's been helpful to soften it with humour yeah, and that the humour has that, um, as you say, like tenderness and sort of sympathy for the for the characters, and also um, observing them, like an ability to observe them, um, all of them catch them in in these moments where we're all absurd and ridiculous in different ways. When there's strong feelings and when there's power in the room, and um, one of the things that for me really does the humour, does the tenderness, um, and just kept me like reading and rereading is the interplay of all the different voices, not just of the um, point of view characters, but there's um, so much dialogue. There's so many different ways of hearing voices in the book. Um, you're going to hear a bit in uh, the second part of the reading, which we'll have in a couple of minutes, that it's almost like radio stations coming in and coming out, eavesdropping, intimate conversations, snatches, um, different registers, different languages. Um, and I wondered, so first of all, I wondered like how much being a musician played in, how much a role it played in like picking that up and working out like almost how to annotate it, record it on the page and get it singing. Um, and like, mm. how was that like something you knew from the beginning you wanted to do with the book or was it something where you looked at it and you're like, okay, to, to make this work, to make it really, as you said, like build these community myths, it needs to have these voices on the page. 
That's such a good question. I, you know, I think a lot of um, first-time novelists, um, or even like first first-time um, print or first write first. This was like my first extended writing project, essentially, and I didn't really know how to write linearly. Like, I think it's a great skill, you know, to write like a traditional novel, and I, I have a lot of appreciation and respect for like you know, the modern Dickensons of the world. Um, but that's definitely not me. <laughs> um, I only really know how to think the way that I think. <laughs> um, and I, I'm always, like, when I'm writing, I always, like, get sidetracked by, like, a song that starts bopping into a sentence. And so then I just started to let that happen. A lot of the book was written like at like four a.m. after I'd been listening to like an old pirate set, like it's like some type of sidewinder coming on, and you know like it it had this thing of, all right, I've just got to let it happen because because <laughs> it's it seems to want to be on the page, um, and so that definitely was a thing of like late night writing, allowing this kind of stream of consciousness to to take over in some aspects. But then also, um, what I love as a producer is sampling. I think sampling is one of the loveliest art forms, and I did want to have that feeling in the book where I'm just like picking and um, picking and mixing and like reversing a sample, um, which I hope comes across in, especially like in the section that comes up with the readings in this today's podcast and. I think translation even. Something that I shy away from though is um, when people say to me that the translation itself is musical um, because whilst it looks like another shape on the page um, I think sometimes uh, um, it depends on who's saying it because there's some people that say it in a way that I definitely sense that they're like alright well you've obviously put this in to like zhuzh it up a bit and it's like oh no it's just it's there because it needs to be there like yeah I can't say it in any other way and um yeah I have found that with some people um when we speak about translation that that becomes a thing where it's like it's exoticized in a way that I, I would like it to just be seen as something that's the status quo and I have spoken with some authors who have read the book since and been and they've just said oh wow it's so like amazing that you got your publisher to do that for you and I was just like well I'm very grateful for Andover stories like Stefan, Emma and um, and then working with Max editing I'm very glad that they gave me that space to be able to um, experiment I just hope that it's not seen as like the only time it's been done, but also that mm. it's not the last time it gets done. Yeah, and it is completely essential to the book being itself and, and building its house. And um, I think you also work with Tilted Axis. Um, it, you have so many hats like it's <laughs> the, 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 I don't know which one is the side hustle or are they all the main hustles but they all feed each other and like Tilted Access have been making such a difference in this space as well of this thinking 
around um, the relationships between languages, between linguistic communities, what that means for like print culture, for like live lit culture, for how we speak to each other about this. And um, I just I want I wondered if you wanted to give a shout out a bit to that um, or if that is too many hats for one podcast. Cool. Um... Yeah, it's all that's just inspired me loads. Like, um, I'd written the book by the time I joined, but it's definitely helped me in how I think about the book, how I think about post, like the post-production and the way that, and the ethics around the book, I think, because I think that the way that the team work is very ethical. And I just love the fact that we get to talk about the politics of... Um, you know, the ways that translators are treated in the industry and how all too often translation is seen as like a literal thing rather than as a creative collaboration. And I think it's been good to have a group chat where, you know, we're all like feminists, you know, um, we're all from different like backgrounds and stuff, but like, we get to talk about the way that things can be improved you know we get period leave and um i just i know that sounds like a strange thing to bring up but it's like um in terms of like oh i'm glad because it's i know it's not completely book related but i think things like that just being nice to yourself i say it in my acknowledgments as well like i think i think in order to write something and put out a piece of work you have to be able to be kind to yourself yeah and you have to be able to take that space for when you're tired and self-care especially when you're writing things that are triggering and i'm i'm starting to come to a point where i feel like everything is triggering like um, (laughs) like everything um, being cabbage you know yeah everything takes on that nature of what you're doing and like we've just got to look after ourselves like if if you treat everything as something to look after yourselves about as well when you've written it um i think that way we can do more for ourselves when we're writing because i think too often the culture of writing is that like okay i've written about a kitchen sink what's it about about a kitchen sink i'm just gonna go right off to work now and it's like well yeah you've written about a kitchen sink but i know that this has more reverberations for you and you haven't quite realised it yet so just always take time take time after you've written do what you can look after yourself and um, yeah I think that's something I love about the writers that we work with at Tilted Axis and the translators that everything is given due respect um, yeah I, I mean I can't speak for all the authors and translators of course because I, I don't know all of them but those that I do know like Norman Ericsson Pasaribu like, even the way that he writes about accountancy is very much woven into his views on society which then reflect back on his views on the experiences that he's closed through it's just like it's this thing of just knowing knowing that the thing is a thing <laughs> yeah. if that doesn't yeah <laughs> so i think keeping keeping the house is a book about knowing that the thing is a thing and it is a book of of due respect and it is a book that is due respect and i really hope Thank you. That, that full respect is coming if it's not obviously everyone at Bailey Fisher is gonna like have words um do not mess with this book um and we're gonna hear another reading for you from you before um 
we close this out so that we get to hear your voice, which is a creative collaboration. I cannot wait to hear the the EP and hear the voices that you have gathered together. And I feel like now, if Tottenham didn't have a witch before, it has one now who is just making magic. So thank you oh, so much. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for so much for joining us today. We can't wait for you to fly. Um, little uh, preview announcement here to join us at BF Day 21, our birthday party literary festival. <laughs> whoa, whoa. We're going to have the book. We're going to have Tija live reading, chatting. Come and get your signed copies October uh, 16th, Saturday, October 16th um, in De Beauvoir Square. And thank you so much for, for being with us today when you have so many projects on. Oh, thank you. Oh, it's, been, it's been clarifying and, and also... Yeah, your energy is infectious. It's so lovely. And I appreciate being able to talk to you. Oh, we we love it. We love this book. And I think I'm going to go uh, fry up some cabbage for lunch now. Mm. Maybe I might do the same. Nice. <laughs> Things are quiet again and the house smells of them, Evelyn. We open all the windows together and sit watching TV. My mum is smoking a lot. She tells me stories about Nena, how she would walk through to the mosque in our village through a field of wheat and goat's foot weed and pray for her husband. Or how, when I was born, she would cover me in so much olive oil that I stank. Stank proper. I remind her that it's good that Nena is buried where she is. We picked the best place. Zadie told me there's a nearby cemetery where they found human bones. Apparently grave robbers are stripping corpses of all their valuables, then leaving them out in the open for the families of the dead to find the next day. She tells me she's worried she won't be able to get the government to cover the funeral costs, as she's paid for some of it in advance already. Just because she's paid for it doesn't mean she can afford it. As the night sets in, we put the kettle on and the sound of it's comforting. We have mint tea and my mum gets a text, explains she's tired and goes to sleep. Shut the windows before you come upstairs on them. But it's a hot night and there's a breeze to the couch at just the right angle. Our radio surf stopping on 100.4 FM. Each one's a bop. I fall asleep to garage instrumentals. Freestyles enter my half dreams. We take girls from broken homes. Mind yourself. Where's my Uzi? Where's my phone? Come on, mate, cut the man's legs. Blaze it, deface it, I rearrange it. Shut up, fool. Wheel up and come again. I don't care who they are, where they are. If they want to bring beef, here we are. You're going to wake her up. I wake up when the music cuts off. Something makes a crashing noise. When my eyes open, I see these men. I like their trainers. One has a pair of night black pennies on. They look so fresh, you know they had their own shelf back home. They're standing around a small pile that's got our DVD player and some bits from my mum's room. I call for her and get smacked. This big boy slap around the face. It's the first time I've ever been hit by a man. My mum's walking downstairs, she looks at me, and I wonder if she's blaming me. Even I'm blaming me. It's warm, and they've closed the windows behind them. One of them has nice aftershave on, the one who smacked me. 
I feel glad Mum fell asleep in her clothes. I think of slasher films and American women who sleep in lingerie, running away from your Freddy Kruegers, your Jasons. Look at her, little mamacita. Mum looks at me. Tells me not to worry. And laughs at them. They start shoving at her as she falls, mouthing at uh, teeth bucking into the floor. They won't let me go to her. It looks like her front tooth's come out. Her hand goes to her face and she stays in a shape, front on the carpet. She's spitting a lot. Mind my shoes, man. Mind my shoes. The guy talking is edging away from her cautiously. When she starts shouting in Turkish, one of them understands her. You know what? I know this Hatun. She's not alone around here, come quick. They leave through the front door quietly. When I go to her, I've never felt safer. We hug each other on the floor around our pile of things and I close my eyes and can't picture my dad's face. Wow. Wicked, thank you so much. So thank you especially to Tisha. That was an absolutely amazing interview as always. Oh, what wonderful guests we got on the show. Um, which is why we are indeed the number one book-based podcast in EA. <laughs> and now, you know, expanding uh, our reach to Tottenham as well, neighbours. Uh, yeah, it was absolutely brilliant talking to Tija and I cannot wait to see her live uh, in conversation with Isabel Weidner and Frankie Mirren talking about Londons, how to write real Londons now. Um, so yeah, you can pick up your tickets on the Burley Fisher website. If you're swinging by the shop, just ask uh, any staff member how you can... Uh, grab tickets for the single event if you want a weekend pass headliners um, we also have some free tickets for low age and no age uh, guests for the headline um, you can just drop us an email uh, webshop at bellyfisherbooks.com to sort out one of those for yourself and we will have more deets of the free events coming soon everyone is welcome everyone welcome all right uh, love and blessings to all our listeners, whichever borough of London or whichever part of the world you might be in. It's goodbye for me, Dan Fuller. Yeah, and for me, so may I. Peace. <laughs>